primitive.org. Today I'm on the phone with a wonderful woman, an author. Her name is Osprey Oriel Lake. She is a lifelong advocate of social and environmental justice issues. She is the director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus on the governing board of Praxis Peace Institute. Osprey has traveled to five continents, studying ancient and modern cultures while making presentations at international conferences and university. She is the founder, artist of the International Chima Monument Project, creating 18-foot bronze sculpture monuments for locations around the world where people can ponder a better future for the earth and humanity. Her themes concern new cultural narratives and the way public imagery and stories either enhance or distance our relationship with the earth. Osprey's unique, unique perspectives as a renowned international sculptor and public speaker on environmental issues have been featured on both national and European television. Well, Osprey, if you'd like to say a few words about yourself, things that you think about, that you are and you represent, I'm grateful that we're together, and please go ahead. Thank you so much for having me on your program, Joanna, and, and um, I think it, it's really appropriate that your program brings forth this term, the future primitive, that uh, comes from D.H. Lawrence. And I, I think that um, many of us are really working with this theme in, in different venues and different avenues and personal and um, professional explorations of really what that means, because I think a lot of my work um, stems from a real interest in how each of us can really reclaim our connection to the natural world and in our, in our own way really respect and learn from uh, ancient cultures, indigenous peoples' uh, lives today and really reclaim this old yet needing to be new way uh, of connecting with the land and living in so much more balance with our ecosystems, with our waterways, with our forests. And I think a lot of my work comes from that deep love of nature and understanding that we're in a terrific time of peril, really, and what can we do about it. Um, and I also wanted uh, to mention um, that um, in, in our talk, you know, we're going to be talking about my book, Uprisings for the Earth, Reconnecting Culture with Nature. And a lot of the themes in my book really have to do, do with this idea of uh, reconnecting with, with the natural world. An Uprising for the Earth won a 2011 Nautilus Award. 
And I've been reading this book with a lot of uh, gratitude and pleasure. And um, there's a line in the beginning that uh, really uh, penetrated me. And it's the question, how can I offer something of dignity and authenticity to the earth? Would you speak to that, Osprey? Yes, I think that, um, you know, we live in a culture that has uh, become, for many reasons, very, very distant from nature. And um, I think it's brought us to this time uh, that we really need to question how we're living. Um, And as I'm saying, you know, I think we live in a time of, of terrific peril, but oddly enough, also a time of great promise, because we have such an opportunity in crisis moments to change and have paradigm shifts that are necessary right now. I do, as the director of the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, of course, I'm, I'm aware of a lot of extreme uh, environmental conditions on a daily basis, um, because we do work not only in the United States, but also in other countries where, uh, as an example, we have partners in Ghana right now where we're working to build um, a center for women to come and learn about Uh, adapting to these extreme weather conditions of too much drought or too much flooding and very practical hands-on trainings to deal with water sanitation and and different kinds of agriculture in these in these extreme drought situations Um, so I'm just very aware on a daily basis how deeply out of um, balance we are with our earth and and how this is leading to such an extreme condition for not only the human species but of course all other species and the health of our oceans, the health of our skies, the health of all plants and animals around the world. And I think we need to get a much deeper analysis and ask much deeper questions about what is it that we really need to change because we've got quite, you know, we've got our work cut out for us from changing our cultural narrative and how we're expressing ourselves with nature to understanding deep, um, shadow aspects of our society that have led to a lot of these crises. And there's just one example, you know, so we you know, stay in a realm where people can really touch what we're talking about today. Um, there's an environmentalist and author um, that I'm sure many people have heard of, Paul Hawken, mm-hmm. who cites the example that whether you ask children or adults to identify some hundreds of names of brand names or logos from commercial products, most people really have no problem doing that. They can identify these logos and brand names. But if you ask them to go just right outside their front door, as an example, mm-hmm. and name just, you know, 10 species of plants in their own neighborhood, just 10, most people can't do that. And it, it's not so much a judgment, but, but again, part of this inquiry of, wow, isn't it amazing that, you know, with all the technology and information overload we have, we can name all these products that we consume, but just to know what's in our neighborhood, which plants that live there, and if we hear a bird singing outside our window in the morning, exactly what kind of bird that is, and what is our relationship to our bioregion and to where we're living. And I think this is very challenging because right now over half of the world's populations are living in urban environments, mostly disconnected from nature. Yeah. So as we're living more and more in the cities, it does get harder and harder to connect with nature, yet we can do that. I mean, that's the exciting thing is once we're aware that we're disconnected, we can actually do something to change it. And I think that's part of this inquiry about what we have to offer is to get to know where we live, get to know our watersheds, our food systems, where does our energy come from, 
because this relationship building is a huge part of what can be healing for us as individuals, but also our healing with the earth. You speak about the authenticity of handmade things, like the Pomo native baskets, and I think that's very important. Um, speak about the beauty and, and the importance of touching things that were made by hand. Well, I think that's something that uh, is... Um something that we actually, our heart aches in many ways from not having those things. Um, you know, and uh, one of the things that we offer in the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus, it's a program that we've just begun called Resilient Community Building. And we do a lot of things around teaching people about their local watershed and how to put in their own um, gray water systems in their home and a lot of practical knowledge about really how to live more sustainably. But a part of the program is actually about this topic you bring forth because um, we call it reskilling. And other organizations also have been using this term of reskilling ourselves in how to knit and how to, you know, preserve fruits that are growing in our garden and actually getting our hands re-engaged with the earth and with the things that are in our daily lives. And you know, there's just something so joyful. Actually, as we're uh, on the interview today, I'm um, uh, wearing a pair of these wonderful handmade woolen um, knitted slippers from a very dear friend, an elderly woman from Germany, who mm -hmm. knitted them in the way that her grandmother had taught her, and mm -hmm. she sent them to me. Mm -hmm. And I absolutely love them. They're, they're worn to death. But, you know, when I put them on, I know that she was thinking about me when she knitted them. And it's uh, all from hand-dyed wools that uh, were collected from the forest in her area. And there's a beauty and a authenticity to these slippers that mean everything to me because they were made with love and care and personal attention. And I think that when we have things that are handmade, whether it's art in our home or, you know, uh, it's like when we cook for ourselves versus going to a restaurant for dinner. There's something about our personal presence and our spirit that goes into those things that are handmade that have a quality to them that really connects us to the earth and to other people who've made them. And again, when we have our culture that's so very top-heavy, where everything is so mechanized, I think there's something so special about having those handmade things um, in our hands and making them by hand ourselves and getting our hands re-skilled makes our hands really happy. It makes our hearts really happy. Mm -hmm. And just being able to have those skills to to have, um, you know, the basic tools we use every day, have some connection to them. And obviously, you know, I love a lot of the technologies we have. I, I love my computer and I, I love my cell phone. I, I'm not someone who's opposed to technology. I just think we need some balance. I think we can be a lot more balanced in having some things that are high technology and other things that we make with our hands and really redefine a balance with, with the kinds of things we have in our daily lives. So the physical items that, that we hold and use every day um, have some connection to us more personally. So tell me about you in your life, how you create balance, because 
maybe it's up to us women to show the way of balance. And so I'd love to know you do a lot of things. You're a writer, you're a sculptor, you go out in the world and give talks. And so how do you create balance in your life, Osprey? I think that's always a challenging question, and I think it always, you know, for me it's evolving. Sometimes it's in balance and sometimes it's not. Um, I think uh, one of the ways that I find to to become the most clear and um, be centered in my own life is to take time in the natural world. I think that's one of the most important things for taking time in my garden. Um, I, I think balance has a lot to do with being very simple. You know, and, and the simple things that we can do, whether it's walking along the ocean, if we are so fortunate to be to live on a coastline or by a river, um, even if we're in the middle of a city. Sometimes I have to give talks in the middle of New York City or Washington, D.C., and I always try to find a park wherever I go in any city and make sure I create a little bit of space just to take time even in a park when I'm in a, in a big city area. Um, so for me, I think one of the, the most key ways is to... Uh, stay connected to the natural world. What is your own story that has led you to this awareness of our home, the earth, and how we we need to uh, be more connected to our home? Well, I, um, one of the earliest experiences I had, uh, I grew up in the country um, in a small town in Northern California and did a lot of hiking there. And I remember the first time, I believe I was about 14 years old, when I came across a huge clear-cut forest. And it absolutely shocked me to the bones to see just this, for miles, this area that had just been, you know, like a war zone of fallen trees and just the ground turned up and splintered and it just really pierced my heart to to see that this is you know how we were treating the forests um because i think we can do sustainable logging i'm not against logging but the way this what i had seen was something that that was not sustainable was just so violating of the earth and i started to get involved in um doing work to protect the redwood forests um, in northern california and it, it just started my education, realizing that, you know, everything from, you know, how we overconsume to, you know, our, our growth model of understanding that, you know, our economics are so dangerously based upon consumerism and endless, a model of endless growth that is not possible on a finite, one beautiful planet, um, to now, you know, getting very engaged in, in uh, climate issues. You know, as, you know, just the evolution of time, just seeing how with all the tremendous work people and groups have done all over the planet to protect our Earth, we are still marching way too fast towards incredible destruction. You know, we know species are going extinct every day, hundreds of species every day. And, you know, I think that many of us who are working in the environmental field um, are aware of just the time clock that is ticking right now. Um, I'm, I'm even just thinking here in the United States where people are still in tremendous denial about the climate crisis. We had, you know, just in April, a massive storm that swept out of the Rocky Mountains into the Midwest and the South, and it started like 150 tornadoes 
that killed 43 people. Mm-hmm. And then uh, just, you know, this, the, it too, we had also the super outbreak. It was called a bigger storm that spread to more than 300 tornadoes. Mm-hmm. Um, that was incredible. And, you know, 339 people were killed between that and this series of uh, tornadoes that went through. And then we had Hurricane Irene in August um, that killed about 45 people. So it's amazing to me that we're seeing these huge weather extremes, the Texas drought that induced incredible wildfires just this September. And yet, you know, there, it, it's just very difficult for people to embrace really what is going on. And I think those of us who are really have been really working to reconnect our personal lives with nature and understanding what's happening with the natural cycles have come to a point of realizing we're going to have to elevate and, and rapidly increase our communications and change our strategies because things are accelerating at a rate that requires so much more than what we're doing at this time as a society, as a culture, at our political front. Um, you know, we've got to scale up and we've got to do it at speed. It, a lot more is being required right now. So speak to us about the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus and the connection between uh, women and the climate situation. Um, Yes, the the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus um, is an organization that um, provides platforms nationally and internationally for conversations and actions around climate issues. And then we're very engaged also in our own Initiatives, and we're really focused on women's leadership because we really found through a lot of research that empowering women is actually a major component. It's certainly not the only one, but a crucial one in really generating the collective will that we need right now to make the changes necessary. Um, and, uh, you know, just to cite a few things because it, it was very interesting for us when we did this work that. When you empower women through jobs and education, whether you're in the developed world or in developing countries, some pretty important things happen. Um, Population stabilize, something we really need. Economies improve, something we need, because we know there's a big relationship between the economy and the environment. So when the economies improve, it really supports um, the environmental conditions improving. When you empower women, children's health and education improve. So... You know, it turns out that when women thrive, communities thrive. And when we're looking at a lot of these negative impacts of climate change, we're seeing, unfortunately, especially in developing countries, that it's hitting women the hardest. Yet at the same time, they're really key to solutions. Um, Women account for like 65% of household food production in Asia. In the sub-Saharan Africa, it's about um, 70 to 80% that's responsible for household food production. So it's really amazing how much women are in charge of agriculture in many regions. So it's also one of the reasons that they're being affected the most by these changing weather conditions. But as I say, what's amazing is when you start empowering them and helping them and working with their seeds and their agricultural system, their water systems, things start really improving. So that's why organizations really focusing on women and women's leadership, because we see it as a key leverage point um, in really being able to help us solve a lot of these very critical problems. And we're also seeing that women have a very unique, it's not better, but very unique relationship to nature. And, and we think that that's something that's been really missing. We know um, since we've 
been living in, in a dominator society, or some people say patriarchal society, mm-hmm. for many thousands of years, the voices of women have really been suppressed and oppressed. And we think there's also an element of lifting up women's voices that the world really needs to hear. The way women work, the way women feel, the way women embody uh, the future generations, and a time to really empower women's voices to speak out right at this critical juncture in human history where we're really, you know, we're at a crossroads. We're really at a crossroads as a species and as a planet, and I think we really need to include more than ever women's voices and women's ideas because it's really been missing from the equation. So you bring in um, this um, folk uh, heroine, Frau Holle, in Germany, and uh, you speak about the presence of women in our stories and works of art. Could you speak about that in relation to uh, both literature and your work as a sculptor? enjoyed uh, researching, writing about in, in uh, my book is, is about really understanding how to bring in the story of the feminine and, and, and the images of women and their stories. And again, with this idea of, um, since we've been living out of balance with the earth and out of balance with each other, one of the big imbalances is a respect for the earth as, as the great mother, the, the earth mother, mm. and the voices of women and women's leadership. And there's, a, there's an obvious connection. Um, and uh, I love um, the work of Vanda Nesheva. Uh, she wrote a book called Staying Alive, in which there's some wonderful connections between our relationship with nature and our relationship with the earth, mm-hmm. and how with the denigration of the earth and women, we, we really have um, uh, become a, a society, a dominator society that is, is destroying all life. And so what I'm exploring, and I've done this a lot with my artwork, is you know, how to celebrate the strength and beauty and power of images of women and, and the earth as female, and how we can bring that back into our language, back into our stories, back into our histories, back into our public art, um, a lot of the artworks that I've done feature really very strong images of, of women. Um, and uh, I devote uh, uh, several chapters in my book to really uplifting women's stories and talking about the history of women. And, and of course, we need to do this all over the world. I focused on the United States and, and some of the stories of women historically that I think are so beautiful and powerful that we need to know are part of our cultural history. Because I think when we um, write women back into history, so to speak, it uplifts men, women, children, girls, and boys to really see uh, how fulfilling it is for women to be empowered and take an equal seat uh, with their male counterparts. And that we're really missing out on this and that it's hurt us as a people. And there's many cultures have different sayings about, um, you know, if you want to look at uh, how civilized a society is, see how they treat their women. Hmm. And I think there's a real truth to that. So tell us um, perhaps where in the world have you seen the most respectful and the best treatment of women and what would be an example of um, 
of a good life as a woman? Well, I often, um, I don't think it's good to idealize any, any society or culture because I think, you know, human beings are evolving. But in my experience, um, I think that uh, we can look to a lot of indigenous cultures, indigenous peoples, who have long held, you know, a respect for our mother planet and for women and, um, you know, an understanding for respect of all life. Um, I, I think that's a good place to begin and um, to, to also realize that there has been so many amazing women in societies around the world, we just don't know their stories. So I think part of it, too, is, is educating ourselves about that missing link in our storytelling. But yes, I would, you know, I would refer to a lot of indigenous peoples and their understanding of the balance of, of women and men and that, um, to use Rianne Iser's term, I really love the work of Rianne Iser, who did mm-hmm. a wonderful book called Chalice and the Blade, uh, talking about a partnership model of society right. where you're really seeing the masculine and the feminine and women and men in a partnership model versus a domination model. Um, and I, I think it's all very connected. Our, our, our uh, very dangerous um, Western beliefs of, of domination over nature, man over woman, um, have really played themselves out to the point where we are facing massive extinction. And this old paradigm really needs to change. And I I think that's what we're really talking about now at many levels. You say um, many beautiful things in your book. uh, And for instance, that when you walk amongst the redwood trees and you pick up a tiny redwood seed, uh, you are awed by the fact that the smallest seed can grow to be the biggest thing. Do you have this feeling about uh, this, these seeds of reconnecting with nature that we are picking up now all over the place? Yes, yes, I think so. I mean, I think this is, you know, as I was mentioning earlier, why this is such an amazing time where we're looking at peril, but we're also looking at promise. Because, you know, as an example, I work with a lot of young people um, who are working in, in the field of, like, climate justice movements and that sort of thing. And, you know, the deep love that I see in their eyes for the future, not only of humans, but the earth and their deep love for seeding hope and uh, their absolute determination to live in a different way. Um, and their enthusiasm to change the world as they see it. Um, I, I think that gives me a great deal of hope, absolutely. And I, I think those are, those are the seeds of the future that I rely on a lot, is, is the seeds that the young people are carrying. You quote uh, Buckminster Fuller, and you say some words of his, precession is the effect of bodies in motion on other bodies in motion. Could you speak about what that evokes for you? Yes, I think that um, I think that we have designed our cities and a lot of our the way we've created our built environment and the way that we've 
if you will, used the resources of nature in a way that has really set us apart from respecting the natural cycles and the natural rhythms that Buckminster Fuller talks about. And I think that this whole notion, the, the example that he gives, one of that I love, is that uh, is when you um, see the bumblebee, or mm-hmm. the honeybee, rather, mm-hmm. doing her job out with the flowers and going from flower to flower to flower, collecting pollen, um, while the same bee is doing her work for her job and her task in her own nature, which is to collect the pollen for her beehive to then create the honey. All that is occurring, but simultaneously, mm-hmm. all the flowers are getting pollinated by that same act and that beautiful synchronicity of those two actions coming together, that coevolution, if you will, that mm-hmm. each into its own nature is now feeding another nature. And I think that's very beautiful. And Another way of looking at it, because I think um, there are many people are now looking at, you know, how do we build our world and live as humans that is in coincidence with this more beautiful and, and uh, symbiotic relationship that's healthy with the natural world. And there's scientists that I love and, and a new emerging scientist called uh, biomimicry, mm-hmm. which I'm sure you have heard of. Um, and this, this term was coined by Benyus. Yes. Yeah. And I, I just love, I love the idea of biomimicry of, it, you know, um, really different than the old model of thinking, which views the earth as an endless resource for us to use up and create toxic materials and then throw them away. Um, this, is, this is really seeing um, that nature is our model. Nature is our teacher. And, um, you know, there's, there's a wonderful example I remember reading about where um, these architects who were biomimics uh, were working in Zimbabwe uh, looking to, to build an air conditioning unit for this very, very large building complex. And they wanted to see, you know, how can we do this in a way that's really energy efficient and models after nature? And they went into the region there, and they found these very, very large termite mounds. And when they studied these termite mounds, and they're quite, they're several, you know, they're tall, um, they saw that the termite mounds were self-cooling. The way that the termites create their tunnels and wait, uh, allow for the air to move through, the whole mound is self-cooling. And that's pretty amazing in, in temperatures that are quite extreme in this region in Zimbabwe. So they took that model of how the termites did that and applied it to this building, created an air conditioning unit modeled after the way that the, that the uh, termite mound is made. and the end result was that the building is using 90% less energy for the ventilation system than conventional buildings the same size. Mm-hmm. So it's just a really, and there's many, many examples for biomimicry, that's just one that comes to mind, but um, this whole idea that we can look to the natural world and see these symbiotic relationships, see these models, and design and create a way that is conducive to life and that doesn't harm. I think it's really a marvelous way for us to start living and realizing we can apply our imagination and our creativity to living in a healthy way. So this is a way in which uh, humans are behaving rightfully like bees 
recreating an intimate relationship with the earth. What does the word intimacy, what does the, the, the idea of intimacy with the earth evoke for you? Well, I think it has a lot to do with our intimacy with ourselves first. I think that, you know, it a lot depends on how open we are. I think that the rivers and the mountains and the trees um, are all alive and are there for us if we choose to be open to a conversation with them and that really the natural world is the greatest teacher of all and that when we decide that, you know, we walk out of our front door and, and, you know, look at the sky or look at the stars or take a walk in a park or a forest, that when we allow ourselves to be very open to this conversation, there's so much that, that the trees and the birds and the wildlife want to offer us and to connect with us. But it has a lot to do with us deciding that these great beings that we share the earth with are of great value and have, um, you know, are our relations. They are our relatives. So I think it has a lot to do with also understanding um, our openness to, to what uh, the beauty of life and the awe of life has to offer us. But it, it first begins with us. Hmm. Very nice. Like uh, this morning, there was uh, uh, a bit of construction going on here, and we're out in the country. And we could tell that the crows were particularly excited. (laughs) Not about the construction, but about the breaking the silence of this place. Osprey. I would like to go back to Frau Holle, the German woman who lives in the forest, and Baba Yaga, the Siberian woman who lives in the forest, and perhaps make a correlation with Kali, if that's a possibility. than me, but what I will say is that um, I think that the old stories of the keepers of the forests and the keepers of the waters and the seasons and these tales of these goddesses and these ladies of, of nature are very important to us, and they help us really understand good relationship, good etiquette with the earth. And I think that when we're missing these stories, we're really missing out on the early teachings of how humans can live in a good manner with our relatives and and our, our beautiful mother planet. So that's one aspect is that, you know, that's, the, to me, the original nature, a lot of the, the fairy tales and uh, the nursery rhymes that were taught as children, a lot of them have been twisted and changed as I go into my book, you know, about how they've been rewritten. And it's, it's, it's uh, you know, a lot of the original teachings try to sort of 
be taken out of them. But still, still, if you look at them and you take time and you research them, you can still get into some of the core knowledge that is inherent in them. These ancient wisdoms that, you know, that humans have been passing on from one generation to the next to, to help this human story of, of how to live in good in a good way, how to live in beauty, how to live in good relationship with each other, how to good, live in good relationship with the natural world. It, it, they're keys in these stories, and I think these ancient voices of, of these goddesses and these women and these keepers of, of the different natural systems are there to communicate, you know, a bigger story that we're part and particle of. Um, and I, I think that it's a great loss if we don't have them or we don't include them in our world. So I, you know, added some here and there in my stories. Um, and then beyond that, I would say also that a lot of the, the, the words specifically used and the language itself in these stories are very essential to us because mm-hmm. they're, they're words that go back in time that are connected deeply with place and different wisdoms. And, and it's important to also pay attention to them. So I went into the, the story of Frau Hulle and, and how that goes back to, in the old German, Germanic languages, you know, of, uh, of, of the, the Hella and going back into the time of light and, and going back to uh, the goddess Helen and, and all these different words that have to do with light. Um, and I think it's, it, it's important to, to understand that they're conveying uh, a deeper, holistic, and very spherical, many-layered understanding of our world. Osprey, let's talk about your practical works around the world as an activist and as a sculptor. Okay, well, maybe I'll give an example of, of each. Um, one of the, one of the uh, projects I'm working on right now um, with concerning water is, you know, really thinking about how I think as the years soon coming now, we're going to realize that um, our watersheds and where we live with our water is going to be more and more important because water is life. And, of course, if you're living in India or Africa right now in many regions, nobody there needs to tell the people there how important water is because there are huge, huge, huge problems with water scarcity and clean water. So I'm specifically talking here in the United States right now where we're still, I think, way, way, way asleep at the wheel when it comes to understanding that we're really running out of our fresh water. So one of the projects I'm working on right now is called Drop of Water, Drop of Life. And the idea for this artwork is to create unique water fountain sculptures that celebrate our local watersheds and create a way to have a revitalized, real personal connection to water. So what I'm doing is, as an example, in my area, um, I live in Marin County, California, is I've gone up into uh, Bone Tempe Lake, which is part of our local watershed, and I collected a water sample. And from that water sample, I worked with a water scientist, and we grew a crystal from that water sample and photographed it. So I actually have a real visualization of what our water looks like in a crystallized form. And then I'm making a very, very, very large uh, metal water crystal designed exactly after the one that we photographed and turning that into a fountain. So it'll be like a 10-foot round water. 
water crystal made out of stainless steel. It will be high polished, so it's a reflective surface like water. And then it will be placed on a, a larger fountain. And the idea here is so people can see a crystallized, this beautiful crystallized form of their water that they're drinking. And then there'll be, you know, different placards explaining this is your watershed, this is the water that you're drinking, this is what it looks like. This is the people in the area who care for your water. These are some ideas about how you can conserve water. And creating a fountain for the center of the community that really can connect people to their bioregion. Because I think many of us realize that it's very hard to care for things that you don't have a relationship with. So if we can have this beautiful symbol in the heart of our cities that celebrates our watershed and remind people that this is the source of life, I mean, I'm hoping that people will be a lot more aware of how to care for their water so that's sort of a practical example of using art as a modality to, to um, help people connect more with nature. And then in terms of a lot of the practical work I'm doing, you know, I was mentioning that we we're, we're, uh, have a resilient community program um, that's operating both in the United States and also in um, places like uh, Ghana and Africa where we're really focusing on supporting women to, to be strong in their communities and, and have different trainings and seminars around what they can do. Um, and there's a wide range of things that we do very much focused on climate change and uh, what, how people can get involved. And if people are interested, they can go to my website, which is at www.worldforum.org. Uh, and you can go there to uh, the button that says Women's Earth and Climate Caucus. But I'm just going to say one thing now because of yes. time, and I know our time is limited, um, is one of the things that we're very focused on right now is a program around rights of nature, which I think is really important for people to know mm -hmm. about, which is really recognizing and honoring that nature has rights. It's the recognition that trees, oceans, animals, mountains have rights just as much as human beings do. And it's, it's a very exciting movement that's happening that can really address a lot of our legal problems around how nature is not being treated properly. And it really turns on its head the notion we've been operating with most recently, which is that really nature is property and not its own rights-bearing entity. And uh, this has been very exciting work. Um, and, and really, we're seeing that, you know, a lot of our regulatory systems around the environment are simply not working. They're not strong enough. So this is a very different paradigm of really actually having nature have the right to exist and flourish. Um, and it's, it's a thriving, even though nascent, movement in the United States where different cases have been now brought to court and people have actually been very successful in protecting their communities, their waterways, um, from different corporations coming in and having nature actually be a plaintiff in court. So it's pretty exciting. And um, in 2008, Ecuador was the first country actually that adopted uh, rights of nature into its constitution. That's so right. this, is, this is a really important real movement that's underway right now, and it's something that the Women's Earth and Climate Caucus has gotten involved in quite a bit the last year. So that sort of gives you a taste of, of what we're doing and, of course, um, working with women leaders around the world to really to empower them to take charge of this climate crisis. We have learned that in the United States, women have, are now deciding 80% of all consumer purchases. That's wow. a tremendous power women have. 80% of all things purchased in this country, women decide. So one of our campaigns is to really direct that 80% towards demanding from the markets clean energy solutions. And 
this is a campaign we've been just starting to roll out now. We're really excited about it because when women find out, wow, we have 80% decision here, what can we do with that? It's a really good question for women to think about. Mm, that's amazing. Well, you, you uh, talk about singing the water praises, and uh, you reminded me in the music of your speaking. I remember when I was a little girl in Switzerland, and we used to go from, we used to walk from village to village, and in the middle of each village was a fountain. And uh, so you made me think about the fact that thirst for water is thirst for life. So you say, of course, we are here, we are put here to be custodians to the earth. So I'd like to ask you, um, what would you like to say in closing about that or about anything else? Well, first of all, thank you so much for having me on your, your program and, and inviting a conversation that is um, multifaceted because I think part of the cycle that we're in as a human species is really being able to integrate our emotional, physical, spiritual, mental, political, economic beings that we are. And I think it's, it's important to have these kind of conversations where we can fluidly, as best as we can, move from different arenas of conversation because it's really going to require our whole selves to move this transition, everything from getting off a fossil fuel economy to a new clean energy economy, to moving from a dominator to a partnership model of society, to uplifting the rights of nature. I think it's going to require all of who we are as a species, and it's going to take all of us together, working together in collaboration and across many disciplines to go through this big, big time that we're in, where it's, it's a, a question, you know, it's a big question for us, what we will do as a species and how we're going to move forward together. And um, so I would just offer that, that we, we keep offering these deeper inquiries, and I thank you so much for, for making that a big central part of your work. Well, I'm grateful, very grateful for our conversation, and uh, in the spirit of the cyber circle, I really want to invite you back in a little while to talk more about your work and your book. Thank you so much, Osprey. Future Primitive is made possible by the Marion Institute. If you enjoy these podcasts, please consider supporting our work by making a tax-deductible contribution online at futureprimitive.org.